Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hune. Our mission is to help you gain your freedom from the exhausting, never-ending corporate rat race. Because time is our most valuable asset. And life's just too short to do work we hate. Thanks for slowing down. All right, welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast, everyone. Um, today, my guest is Nora Denuso. She's a friend of mine that I originally met on LinkedIn, and now we're part of the First Gen Entrepreneurs Group together, which I think has been really beneficial for both of us. Um, so Nora and I have connected. We, we found that we have a lot of shared values. Um, both of us have very strong opinions, I would say, um, and but we disagree in several areas too, which is totally fine and actually totally cool. And I'm excited to have her on the show here today because I think um, in this new era that we're going into, collaborative problem solving is actually a really good business model. You know, if you can help people to solve problems, you can, uh, you know, continue to, to focus on maximizing the value of your service to that ideal client, you can then use social media to find the right people instead of trying to be everything to all people. And, you know, if you can do that, you can build a successful business and create an income stream online. And, and that's a big part of gaining affordable freedom, which is what this show is all about. So, Nora, thanks so much for, for coming on today, my friend. Thanks, Brian, for having me. This is so fun. Always so fun to chat with you. Agreed. Agreed. So I wanted to start um, just, you know, giving the listener a little bit of uh, insight onto your background. You know, you, you've experienced a lot of success in the corporate world working for ad agencies, um, so much so that I know you've you've talked about how you've given pitches to some of the largest companies in the U.S., yet you still decided to walk away from the quote-unquote dream life to do your own thing. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about why that is and, you know, kind of what the this process of self-reflection and intentionally choosing a new path looked like for you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. I mean... I think like living the dream, like the dream is relative and the dream is different for everyone. And also the dream evolves. So what my dream was early in my career, you know, to, to climb that ladder, to get, you know, from manager to director to VP, which I did and to pitch bigger and bigger brands, which I did, you know, you get to a point and then you're like, all right, been there, done that. Like what else? And that dream you were chasing that whole time, you know, maybe you get to that other side, you, you, you get to the corner office or you get to that boardroom. And I felt like once I, I was kind of, I don't know, I think in song lyrics a lot, because I'm a singer and I'm a musician. And if any of your listeners are Hamilton fans, you know, you're desperate to get into the room where it happens. Right. And then I finally got to the room where it happens and I felt like a cat clawing my way out. I was like, get me out of this room. I don't like this room. I don't like this table. (laughs) It's like the thing you were chasing all along that you thought you wanted, you get there and you decide you don't want it. Like that's a really weird sensation, but it does happen to people, you know, and I know you've talked a lot about burnout and I think that's a little bit what burnout looks like is chasing something so hard you get to it only to realize it's not actually what you want or what you want anymore. So I would say like, yes, early in my career, I wanted to work with bigger brands and have those bigger at bats and then you get them. And then it's like, all right, like your, your priorities shift and also becoming a parent really shifted things for me. 
And then the pandemic. I mean, not many of us other than scientists probably predicted that that was going to happen. So we didn't know like <laughs> what life after a, a scenario like that would look like or feel like or how it might change what we wanted in our life. So that was a, a big driver too for why I decided to go off of my own. It's just the experience of living through the pandemic with very small children and while trying to work a VP level job. So I've got a couple questions. The first one is um, like, what drove you do you think in the first place to want to get in that room that you were talking about? And then what was it about that room? Give us some insight into what that room looked without giving any details and, you know, put throwing anyone under the bus, but like, what did that look like where you were just like, all right, this room sucks. Well, I mean, the, the going for it, like why, why, like, why do we, right? And like, I've, t- I've talked about this quite a bit is like, I never aspired to be an entrepreneur. Like that was never in my consciousness because, you know, we're in first gen entrepreneurs, meaning our parents were not entrepreneurs. So that was never something I thought was possible in my life or I desired. Like I thought <laughs> if any of your <laughs> listeners are like TV and film fans, like, you know, Mr. Burns, from the Simpsons. I'm like, okay, well, I get why he's an entrepreneur. He has like a shitload of money. All right. I, 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 Smithers. Um, but, but then that were like super innovative, like, you know, Doc Brown from back to the future. I'm like, okay, well, I get why he's an entrepreneur because, you know, he's a little bit crazy and just no one would let him do that thing. He's got to be on his own to do that thing. So in my head, I'm like, well, you know, I'm good at what I do. I can help people make money. Like that whole meme, like you had one job, like that's me. Like my, you have one job, make us millions of dollars. So like, you know, you do that for a company, right? Like you do that for someone else's company. Never really considered that I could do it for myself (laughs) for the longest time. And then one day I was kind of like, hmm, I could just make this money for myself now that I know how to do it. Right. Um, But as far as one thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I remember you, you were telling me before about like, the, the actual numbers in terms of like how much you were bringing in for the company versus how much you were being paid. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, it's like, I mean, hey, like uh, data and numbers are, are good. I'm not a finance person. We talk about this a lot, but, you know, numbers don't lie. You see number on pa- numbers on paper. And at one point I calculated that I was helping bring in 20 to 40 times my salary every year for my company. Now, I mean, I'm not the only person that plays a role, right? Like I'm more like quarterbacking it. It's, it's like a football team, you know, it's like I'm, I'm quarterbacking. I'm kind of like play calling in the, in the middle of it, like switching it up, you know? Yeah. You have the coach on the sideline, but ultimately like if you're the one in it, like you're calling the shots and you can, you can kind of change, change it on the fly. I was just going to say, you want to look at the, the football analogy in the quarterback, there's 11, people on the football field. So even if they looked at the amount of revenue you were bringing in and said, all right, Nora's going to get one eleventh of it because she's no better than the others, you know, that are on the team. Still, that's a lot of freaking money that they're not paying you. Right. 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 So, yeah. So you kind of look at it. I mean, and, you know, it costs money to run a business in the days where we had, uh, you know, offices, you, you have a lot of overhead, you have all these people's salaries and, If you're a smaller company, you probably have a lot of executives. You're a little more top heavy. So all of that. But I mean, all that to say, you know, once you start to see that on paper and you're like, wow, I'm putting in a lot of effort and not getting that much for it. Like, could I possibly do this for myself? You know, so that was something I started to to think about. But as far as like the room I was in, I think what became problematic for me is that I was 
an executive, but not a partner. So like, I didn't have a vote in my agency that like counted as much as some other people's votes. And like, I didn't have the same financial stake they have in it. So I wouldn't say that was unfair, but when you're a, like, when you're a member of the executive team and you're in the room and you're hearing about the calls that are being made or are planning to be made, and then those calls get made, and maybe you are in that room and disagreeing with those calls and speaking up and saying, mm, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I, I no, I'm not on board with that. But, you know, you get overruled, right? It's like a majority rule. And also, if you have less of a, of a vote, you know, or your vote counts for less, then you're probably going to get overruled a lot. And I feel like I was often like a dissenting voice and not agreeing to certain things. But the perception that like the whole company would have or like the employees would have is like, oh, wow, Nora really didn't go to bat for us. She was complicit in this decision that we don't agree with. And, you know, there's only so many times you can be like, oh, well, I didn't agree to that. It's like, well, but I'm, I'm part of it. You know what I mean? So I think that's the the challenge. It's like when you get to the executive level, it's not just you, it's a team that's making calls. And if you find that you're consistently not agreeing with the calls that are being made and not endorsing them, then maybe it's time to make your own calls from the head of your own table. So that was kind of the point I got to. Well, good for you for um, like not, not only just taking that leap, but you know, recognizing the, your value. There's so many people out there that don't recognize their value. I didn't for the longest time, you know, so, so kudos to you for that and for having that confidence in yourself. And I would think, you know, and, and this is something you and I have talked about how mission is very important to us and how we have things that drive us beyond money. And so you were in that role and you could have said, you know what, whatever. I'm making a lot of money. My life is good. And that's kind of what I think corporations bank on is that most people will kind of make that decision. But you got to a point where you decided like, I need more. There's more to life probably in addition to the fact that you could be making more money elsewhere. So I wanted to bring that up because I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the mission behind the work that you do and, and how that drives you. Because I think both of us agree like that as a new entrepreneur, if you're going to do your own thing, you got to have something that's really going to drive you other than money to keep you moving through all the adversity. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my coach, I just finished her coaching program. It was a nine month peer coaching program called Edge. My coach, Christy Uffelman, worked before she started her own company for an entrepreneur, Jack Mascaro and a construction company, he owned the Mascaro company. And now his sons and, you know, it's like future generations are passing the company down. But when she worked for Jack, he told her, and this is like that whole thing about, I didn't think I'd be an entrepreneur and I'd like never aspire to it. When she told me what Jack said, I was like, oh my God, that's the unlock. Like that, (laughs) that is so me. He told her entrepreneurs go into business to fix something that drives them nuts. I was like, that's it, because there's so many things that drive me nuts. Like, like I said, those calls are being made. I'm like, I don't agree. I, I don't agree with that. You know, so it's like that concept that like there's something like you said, there's something more than just like making money. Right. Like there's a thing that I don't agree with, like ethically. I don't agree with that. You know, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. Like and I think about the intersection of ethics and capitalism a lot. And we've had some really good conversations about that. And at first, you know, I was kind of like talking to people in my network and asking like, oh, you know, do you think it's possible to be an ethical capitalist or, you know, 
can we talk about ethical capitalism? And a lot of people said, you know, no, those two things are mutually exclusive. Like, <laughs> like uh, you know, um, capitalism is extractive. Capitalism is, you know, chasing profits and putting profits over people and over the environment and over many things. And, uh, but, but at the same time, I'm like, well, what other system do we have? Like, and my friend Amina Chaudhary, who's also in first gen with us, talks about like how being born onto the conveyor belt, like we were born onto the conveyor belt of capitalism. And as far as we know right now, there's no way to get off the conveyor belt. So like, so what are you going to do while you're on it? Right? Like, can you, can you fix it? Can you rebuild it? Can you redirect it while you're on it and while it's moving? And so now I talk about it and think about it as being an ethical actor within the system of capitalism. And until such time that like someone else creates another system that we can participate in, like this is what we got. So we have to figure out how to move and operate. If you consider yourself to be an ethical business person, how can you operate ethically within the system that we have? Um, And, you know, the other thing about like my values and why I'm doing what I'm doing is that I always felt from seeing, working on some innovation, a lot of innovation projects at the agency level was that the most innovative stuff was happening at small businesses. Like it's very hard, you know, the bigger the ship, (laughs) the harder it is to turn, right? The harder it is to change course. So when you're working with a company like J.M. Smucker or Nestle or PepsiCo or, you know, any of the big, like I worked for in food and beverage CPG agency for many years. So when you're working with a company that large on any R&D initiatives, it's very difficult to create new products and bring new products to market because there's so much at stake, right? And there's shareholders and you have to like consider the not only the investment, but like the reputation of the company and like what if they launch something that is not aligned and doesn't help build their reputation. So like, so innovation happens very slowly at a lot of those companies is what I'm saying. But at small businesses, you know, they're founder led, um, you know, they're it's founders that are being driven nuts by something and they want to fix it, whether it's like, you know, they have an, a food allergy or their child has a food allergy or, you know, they experience something in their life, like living in a food desert and not having access to fresh food, like, any, any of those lived experiences could lead a founder to develop a product or a service that solves for, you know, what's bothering them. And it's actually easier for large companies to acquire those small companies than it is to come up with the innovation themselves. And so all that to say, like, over time, like, I would encounter these really cool small brands, startups, you know, maybe they were, had seed money or series A, B, C, Um, So they, you know, had a few million dollars, but like total, not for marketing. (laughs) So like a fraction of that would be for marketing. And, um, you know, and I would always try to like talk to my ownership team about like, hey, could we work on this, you know, SWAT team, like just a couple people that are like, you know, really tactical and want to work on this or sandbox team, like juniors, like, oh, younger people on our team, like maybe they would like to like have their hand at trying to help like the goat milk farm that makes ice cream, like they could do some cool goat memes <laughs> for this brand or something, you know? And it was always like, no, I think we just want you to like, just pitch the bigger stuff, you know, just, just keep going after the bigger stuff. Because, you know, if you think about it, uh, a small company is just as much effort to work with as a large company is in many ways, you know? And so there's like, all things being equal, why wouldn't a company want to work with a bigger brand that has bigger budgets and has more to play with and more to spend? 
Um, and also, you know, small companies, like they look at it more as like an investment than a cost, you know, like big companies have a pile of money to play with every year. Like I call it the can of gasoline. It's like, all right, big companies get a can of gasoline every year. They have a budget, like a user to lose it budget. So it's like, all right, we got all these little fires burning. We've got an R&D fire. We've got, you know, our existing products. We, you know, want to maybe work with a celebrity endorser. Like how much gasoline should we pour on each of these fires to get maximum propulsion, like maximum rocket fuel, basically to move the needle? Small companies, small businesses don't work like that. You know, they either come into money or they make money on some initiative that they're doing. And now they've got some money to like reinvest into themselves. But it might only be, you know, $10,000 here, $50,000 there. It's not like millions and millions of dollars just sitting there waiting to be spent, typically speaking. And so when you're making an investment, like you have high hopes and you have high expectations. It's very different than like, oh, well, we just get this budget to spend every year. So let's just like play around and see what see what we can get with it this year versus like, I'm gambling with my kid's college fund here, or I'm, you know, investing, you know, a large amount of money back into myself in the hopes that it will pay off. Like that's a very different mindset and mentality. So, you know, I don't begrudge the companies I worked for, for not wanting to work with small businesses for that reason. It's just like, it wasn't a good business decision for them. And it's truthfully not the best business decision for any agency. So part of me was like, Hmm, how could I take, what I've learned how to do in the agency world for big companies and sort of like Robin Hood that to small businesses, because I feel like small businesses do not have the same access to talent and they don't have the same access to resources that large companies do, you know, all the way down to like the tax breaks and and the things, the incentives that large companies get. It's not that there's nothing for small business, but there's not as much. And you're a little bit more on your own to figure it out. And if you go and approach an agency, they're going to tell you, just like my agency would say, we, we, you don't have enough money to work with us. And so then what are they left with, right? Like, you know, over here, <laughs> we've got big businesses and ad agencies working together and they make each other money. Over on the other side, you've got 33 million small businesses in the United States. And who do they get to like buddy up with and make money with? Random people on Fiverr that say that they can, you know, write a write a website or, you know, do a strategy. Like some of them can, but some of them are charlatans. I'm just going to be straight up. Like they are not like not everyone on those platforms is vetted. And if you've ever experimented with working with people on a public platform like that, you will find over time that you don't always pick the right one. <laughs> and so like, that's why people want to come to ad agencies is because we are vetted talent. Like those people are not on staff or permalance if they're not good at what they do. And so what I wanted to be able to do is provide that to small businesses, like provide the same level of service, the same level of expertise, but at a fraction of the cost, because I don't have the kind of overhead. I don't have a, I don't have a building. I don't have a rooftop deck. I don't have a ping pong table (laughs) or a pool table. I don't have a beer fridge. Like I don't have any of that stuff. Like I'm working out of my home office, but I know how to do all the things that an agency does. And I also have the network to connect people to the right talent pool that they need for whatever it is they need to do to grow their business. So I would say the pandemic really changed things because I saw a lot of small businesses and local businesses closing in my backyard in Pittsburgh where I am. And it was just really sad. You know, these were businesses that I frequented or my family did over the years. And to see many of them woman-owned businesses, mom-owned businesses closing. And I'm like, 
basically helping billionaires make more billions. I just kind of felt like, I don't know, they don't need me. Like the big companies don't need me anymore. There's other people that can work for them. Like Procter and Gamble has MBAs out the wazoo. Okay. Like they don't need me. They'll be just fine. (laughs) They'll be fine. But you know, there are probably people who could use my help more and aren't getting it. And what's the cost of not getting that support? It's like in between the not getting it, like if your business fails, you know, there are a lot of people with great ideas that are not ultimately succeeding. And I think that's something we talk about a lot in first gen and are concerned with is like making it past those first five years in business. And like, I just hit year two. So like, I'm getting there, but like, I'm still in that zone myself, you know, like I'm trying to make it to the first five years. So I think the way that we do that as small business owners is to help each other. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, there's just so many similarities as you're describing, like, you know, you could stick with helping the multi-billion dollar corporations or you can help small businesses. And it just makes me think of like my background of, yeah, I can continue helping multi-millionaires like save money on their taxes and build more wealth, or I could help, you know, people who are, who have climbed, you know, kind of the corporate ladder, um, and found out like you did that it's not what they want and there's something more out of life and how do they like efficiently manage the money that they have so that they can create a new life for themselves. So I, I think about this a lot, like, you know, a lot of times people are waiting for the government to tell them, you have to pay taxes or you have to invest in these programs or, you know, like you're, you're waiting for someone else to tell you, you have to do something. It's like, could we instead take it upon ourselves to do the right thing, to do something ethical with the money we're making, like to reinvest or redistribute our dividends or our capital gains? Like nothing is actually stopping you from doing that. Like I th- the one that was kind of disturbing to me of this past like year or two was when it was reported what Elon Musk spent on Twitter and it was like that amount of money could have like gone a long way towards ending world hunger. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, okay, really? Like, <laughs> really? Like, you know, and I'm not saying people who've worked their asses off to make a lot of money. I mean, my father-in-law is one. He was a CEO of a company. He helped them make a ton of money. He did a great job for them. Like, should he not enjoy like some of that money that he earned? Like, hell yeah, he should, you know, and he does. But, you know, also like, He's thinking about like how to set up, you know, a foundation and and how to like help other people with that money. And, and he has helped a lot of people with his money. So like, you know, no one can really tell you. And I don't think they even should like this is how you should spend your money. But I think like we should all be thinking about how we could be more ethical with how we spend our money. Right. And where we invest in, where we reinvest it. And that is a personal decision. And I think people would prefer to have it be a personal decision than like a mandate. So like, you know, the concept of reparations is one that like, I don't think we're going to see the government issue a mandate for reparations in our lifetime. However, people could choose to make reparations on their own if they want to. You know, what's stopping what's stopping a business owner from doing it? I mean, Laura Trevelyan and her family are making reparations they chose to do that. They have the money, they're choosing to do that. You know, so it's like, I think we can all really think and look a little bit harder. I mean, you know, 
this is coming from a place of privilege. I'm speaking to business owners that are making money and are, and are profitable. I'm not speaking to to, to employees that are struggling to, to get by and make ends meet, right? We're talking about if and when you get to the point that you have significant money to spend or reinvest. You know, I was talking to a financial advisor here in Pittsburgh a while ago, and he said, you know, most um, most people they encounter like die with millions of dollars in the bank, like at least five million in the bank. Like they don't actually spend it in their lifetime. I mean, I think part of it is like, you know, if you were raised to be, you know, in a saving versus a spending mentality and perhaps you're a frugal person and, you know, and, it, and if you want to save your money and not spend it and pass it on to a future generation, like that's also fine. But I also don't think we should be hoarding money. Like, you know, there are lots of people that money could help. And again, 5 million, maybe that's not that going to make that much of an impact. It would make some, but not a ton, but I'm talking about people who have like millions and millions and billions of dollars. It's like that money would really make an impact. It's like, do we need a 25th car? Do we need a second yacht? Do we need to buy a company and then tank it? Or could we maybe spend that money to do something better? (laughs) That's just my perspective. I think, um, yeah, that anyone who's who's in the capitalist system that's benefited from it could think longer and harder about what to do with their funds that would improve society and and be thinking more about the collective than about the individual. I think Americans have this whole sense of rugged individualism, like every man for themselves. And then also this notion that like everyone is an individual, everyone is special, everyone is so unique. It's like there are so many other cultures and countries in the world that operate much more on a collective basis, like a community and collective care basis. And like that whole notion of like, it takes a village to raise a child. Like a lot, and a lot of Americans are struggling right now with childcare because they don't have the village, you know? And in other countries you're raised by 35 people instead of two parents, you know, you have aunties and uncles and friends and you know you're you're raised by the community the community raises you i've talked to some of my friends who were immigrants to the united states and came from that more collective culture and it's very like shocking to come to a culture that's like so hardcore individualist but the problem is like when we're all individuals like i talk in analogies a lot so like here's one like you know a ripple if you throw like one pebble into a pond or into a body of water it makes a little ripple but then it's done And like each one of us, when we're being rugged individualists are only really just making little ripples. But if we put the force of many ripples together, we could create a wave. We could create more of a felt impact. So I think it's not very helpful for people to be working in in an individual basis, doing almost anything when we put that combined brain power and dollar power together, that's where we can really make what I consider be a lasting impact or as I like to say, make a dent in the universe. I have some optimism about where we're headed, you know, from an economic and societal standpoint, because, you know, the boomers kind of made their impact, right? And the boomers mentality was get yours, fight, compete, every man for himself, and then keep it all for yourself, right? Or shareholders. And now this, we've got a new generation where it's kind of like, get yours, you know, build wealth, create an awesome life for you and your family, 
and then pay it forward. So I think it's like a very small just shift that can make a massive impact. Um, and 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 you you mentioned you know just making a dent in the world. And once you get more wealth, um, you have a successful business. Um, you're you're going to have more of an ability to you know kind of create an impact, not just from a business standpoint, but from a societal standpoint. And last time we talked, Nora, you had mentioned the importance of taking a stand as a business owner and not being afraid to let people know like who you are and what you believe in. Um, while, while even like allowing your business, like to become part of this social persona as well. So can you talk about why you believe this is so important? Yeah. Um, you know, it's been interesting over the last two years becoming an entrepreneur and then trying to figure out like, what do I like or not like about it? You know, to someone just asked me yesterday, would you ever go back to working for an agency? And I guess I've learned to never say never (laughs) at this point, right? Because things I never thought I would do, I'm doing. So I wouldn't say that I would never work for someone else again, but I'd say like the things you commonly hear about entrepreneurship and, and what people love about it is like, the ability to make your own money and and not have a cap on the money you make, which that is true, although it's variable. You know, it's like it's very roller coastery. Like the highs are high and the lows are lower. You know, so it, sometimes you're really high up and then you're really far down. You know, and and you're eating what you kill and all of that. So a lot of people talk about the money. A lot of people talk about time and like flexibility of time. So like, yes, it's awesome that like I can get my kid on the bus at. 8.45 in the morning and get her off at 3.45 and I don't have to be at an office for 8, 10, 12, 16 hours anymore, which I did before I had kids often. Um, so the flexibility of time is great and, and the money can be great. But what I think I really love the most about it is I now have the ability to freely speak my mind because I'm not representing someone else's company. Like I am not towing anybody else's line, but my own. So no one can fire me from my company (laughs) for something I said. I mean, individual clients could choose not to work with me or not to work with me anymore if they disagree with my positions. But also it's like, you know, that idea that like, if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. And like, wouldn't we rather state our position and stand for something as business owners, because, you know, I will tell people straight up, like I'm, I am working on becoming more and more anti-racist every day. And if you don't like that and you're a racist, well, I don't want to work with you. (laughs) So it's not really a problem for me if you dislike that I'm involved in anti-racism activity, because if you're a racist, I'm not really not interested in working with you anyway. And and I'm, I'm definitely not interested in making you money. So, you know, and so I think, and again, for me, like you have one job, make people money. I've realized over time, like every time I'm investing time in making other people money is time away from my family and myself and things that I want to do. And there is a value exchange there. So it's not like I'm getting nothing for it, but you know, I put a lot of effort into making people money and I'm not going to make money for jerks. I'm just not going to do it at this stage in my career. You know, I'm turning 40 in a couple months and the second half of my life, you know, the first half, first act <laughs> was was learning how to make money and make money for other people. Now I'm going to make money for myself and and then I'm going to reinvest those gains into things that I think are important to me. So I 
I'm like a, I'm a strategist, I'm a planner. So I'm usually thinking five or 10 years out and like thinking like, what's the ultimate goal and working backwards from that, or what's this stage's goal. So I think about my career and like work in decades. And so for me, this next decade, 40 to 50 is going to be, you know, build my businesses, make my money. And then I hope that my fifties will be about investing in other people's businesses and becoming an investor. So I've not done that yet. But uh, that's actually my favorite word in the English language is yet. There you go. Because I'm not a millionaire yet. Yeah. I'm not an investor yet, but I will be. So <laughs> just watch. Give me like five or 10 years. You'll see. You got this. I have no doubts in my mind. Um, it's funny because I think about, it's making me think about, you know how everybody always loves to talk about Alex Hormozy and $100 million leads, $100 million offer, right? And cool, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Everybody wants to create a successful business, but I feel like it's almost becoming like this bro Bible for people who want Lamborghinis and Rolexes. Like he needs to do a follow-up book called a hundred million dollar impact. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I love that. That's a, that's a good challenge. Shots fired. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's like, again, do we need to have 25 Lamborghinis and four houses on, on three continents, or could we maybe have slightly less than that and give something to someone else? And, you know, a lot of wealthy people are philanthropists. Like to, I'm not saying that people are not like, there's a lot of good that's going on. There is a lot of like reinvestment that goes on. I just like to see more of it, you know, and, and you're totally right. Like sort of the, the bro culture around like, like Logan Paul and Mr. Beast and all this stuff. It's like, all right, Mr. Beast, let's see what you're doing to give back. Like, let's, let's be a little more transparent about like where that money is going, you know? And again, like no one has to, no one is required to like, that's capitalism. Like you can do whatever the F you want with your money, but I'd like to see more people standing up and saying, this is what I'm doing with it, or this is what I'm planning to do with a portion of it. Um, you know, like Jeff Bezos's ex-wife and, you know, um, Bill Gates's ex-wife, like they're, they're doing huge things in philanthropy. You know what I mean? So it's like, I just like, I I'm encouraged, like you said, optimistic and encouraged. Like I'm seeing more and more of it. I'm seeing more and more people voluntarily say, you know, I can't take it with me. You can't take it with you. Right. Okay. Like however long we have to make this dent in the universe. And, you know, as far as we know right now, like there's no way to extend our life infinitely and we're not going to need all that money. And we can't take it with us and you can leave a good portion to your family. But if you've made that much, like money makes itself more money when it's invested properly. <laughs> you know that. And uh, I tell my clients that all the time. I'm like, money is actually an infinite resource because money can make itself more money. Time is a finite resource. We cannot make more time. So you have to use your time efficiently and wisely but yeah, I mean, money can make more money. Like, so why don't we just pool the money again, collective, you know, ripples, little bit of money sitting here, 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 here doesn't make itself that much. When you put it all together and you get the compounding effect, that's where you can make a really big impact. So I think it's cool to see like some of these funds developing, like there's a lot to say about like the ethics or lack thereof in venture capital funding or private equity funding, but I am seeing more and more women get involved in investing and, you know, more people of color get involved in building their own funds. 
obviously we have the fearless fund lawsuit going on right now, which is kind of disturbing, I think, but um, just in terms of what they're going through. And I've said a lot about that. I actually most recently got, um, got banned on LinkedIn for, for hate speech. Oh, really? Because specifically about fearless fund, I made a comment that said, I don't know if your listeners know, I'll just give the quick rundown. So the fearless fund is run by two black women and they have grant programs for women of color who are entrepreneurs and business owners. And these grants are usually 10 or $20,000 a piece to help with their business. And the same person, um, his last name is Bloom, I think Edward Bloom, that did the whole um, affirmative action lawsuit like that went all the way up to the Supreme Court and he won. He is now suing them. His organization is suing the Fearless Fund to say that using a statute from 1866 that was actually supposed to help Black people coming out of the era of slavery uh, to not be discriminated against on a racial basis for contracts. So he's using this He's using this law from 1866 that was intended to help black people and flipping it on its head and saying, you are racially discriminating against white people who would want these 10 or $20,000 grants. And so I made a comment. Uh, this is my friend, Aaron Kareen Johnson posted about the fearless fund. And I had a comment on it where I said, wow, white men have the whole loaf of bread and they can't even leave a crumb on the floor for someone else. No crumbs for you. Mm. <laughs> and I got banned as hate speech because I said something about white men. You can't talk about the fearless fun lawsuit though and not talk about white men <laughs> wanting like every crumb. Like, come on. Like, it's, so it's, yeah. It seems to me know. like that's, that seems to me less like hatred and more like just like, come on, be nice. Fact? Like, like. Like, just be a nice person, you know? You're not hating on them. You're wish just wishing they would be a little bit more generous, you know? I mean, look, my dad's a white man. My father-in-law's a white man. My husband's a white man. My son will become a white man. I My business partner is a white man. So I don't, okay, I don't have anything against white men, but I do have something against, like, trying to take every last bit, right? And this is that whole thing about capitalism. It's like, no, I should have access to everything. Everything should be able to be mine. Why? Yeah. Why? why should everything be yours? Like, why can't you allow for a population that has been historically discriminated against and denied and held back? Why are we so obsessed with like, even trying to get the very little that's been offered to that population. And I mean, it's like in VCs, like 98% of funding goes to white men. So we're upset about the 1% that goes to women or the less than 1% that goes to black owned businesses. Really? Really? Cause we already have the 98%. So we also want the, the one or 2%. We also want the crumbs. I think that's egregious. Yeah. You know, it's kind of becoming cliche to say what is enough, but like this is something that was kind of the central theme around um, mine and Derek's conversation, Derek Pollard, when he came on the, the podcast. Oh, I love Derek. But it's true. Like at some point we have to ask ourselves, like, what is enough? You know, what is more money? How is more money going to actually increase our well-being and our quality of life? Because at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? Like that we can die and feel like, hey, I enjoyed my life. 
I feel like that's the only question that really matters. So Nora, one of the things that you mentioned there was about, um, you know, how most people die with a lot of money in the bank and I get it. Like if, if you want to have all that money and leave it to your family, that's fine. But like, what values are you going to be passing on to your family? What legacy are you going to be passing on to them so that that money is put to good use versus, you know, being squandered by generation two or three, which is what happens a lot with really wealthy families. So um, there's actually this book that it's called Die With Zero. And I would say that book and Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel are kind of like the two books that have really influenced the, the way that I've built my business and my philosophy around financial planning is like, yes, let's create wealth, but then let's also um, expand our wealth so that we can create more of an impact and, and die feeling like, to your point, die feeling like you made a dent in the world. You know what I mean? I think that's a much healthier way to look at money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, money is just a tool. Like people are so afraid to talk about money. You know, there's so many like social, you know, norms and issues with, around even just the discussion of money, you know? And I feel like this impacts people in my industry. Like when ad agencies are pitching for business with clients, a lot of times money is the last thing we're talking about. And I usually make it the first. And it sometimes makes people uncomfortable but the way I talk about it is like, this is like a matter of respect and it's more of a respect of time than anything, because if I'm going to invest time and my efforts or my team's efforts into presenting a proposal to you, to talking about how we could impact your business, first of all, I have to know what the goalpost is, you know, like trying to grow without goals is just going to lead you to be going in circles and circling a drain. So we have to know what the goals are, which means you have to tell us like how much money are you making and how much money do you want to make? Like my former boss, um, president of my last agency, Michael Bollinger has this great phrase. He drilled into my head and I, I now ask it of every client, which is what do you want to achieve and by when? You would not imagine the amount of people working at large companies and brands that cannot answer that question. Because they'll say things like, we want more awareness. Okay, that is not a business metric. I asked you, what do you want to achieve and by when? How much money do you want to make? How quickly? Everything else, revenue and profit, right? I mean, because like revenue without profit is also not helpful. That's just like, you know, treading water. So revenue and profit are really the two things that we're always talking about. And every other KPI, a key performance indicator, every other like micro goal is like a small cog in the machine that drives the bigger wheel of revenue and profit. So like, I need to know how much revenue you are making right now and how much you want to make. I need to know how profitable you are now and how profitable you want to be. And then, and only then can I tell you if how quickly you want to achieve that is realistic and is rooted in reality. Like, you know, when you think about growth, like most people think about, you know, up into the right, like a chart <laughs> that's moving yeah. to the right, right? But like, you know, up into the right, though, could look like really slow, steady growth over time, you know, 10, 20% year over year growth. I mean, in the stock market, you know, even, even less than 10% year over year is considered good, right? You know, it's like, I've just been working on an annuity project and like, it's a six, 6% MIGA. So multi-year guaranteed annuity, 6% a year. And that's 
better than some CDs and some products or some savings accounts that are returning even less than that. So, right. So like that would be like a slow, steady growth up into the right chart. But then there are also businesses that like shoot up really fast, like have an astronomical rise. Like you look at Rihanna starting Fenty Beauty and within three years, it's worth $2 billion. You know, like that's unusual. That's like, that's an outlier, but sometimes businesses grow really far, really fast. And sometimes they grow really slowly over time. So, you know, growth can look like, well, if you're on audio, you won't see my little hand visual, but it could look like this or this or this, you know, like there's a lot of flex to growth, but then you have to have that conversation about like, all right, if you want to grow really fast, what is it going to take from an investment standpoint to get there? And not just in dollars, but like time cost, people, people power, you know, like all those things. And I think a lot of times people really, they know they want to grow, but they don't know how much or how fast or how far, or they have an idea of how much they want to, but they, they don't have any sort of realistic route in reality of like what that's going to take. So that's something I do in my consulting now as a growth consultant is to help people understand what growth looks like now, what it could or should look like, and how you will get there. And that's really rooted in strategy. It's rooted in business strategy. A lot of people that we were talking about before we started recording, like they think tactics, they start with the tactic. They're like, oh, we should podcast. We should blog. I see that someone else is doing this. We should do this too. It's like, okay, but hold up. Why? (laughs) Back it up. Like, what's your business goal? Like, what, what do you want to achieve and by when? Will blogging help you achieve that? Will podcasting help you achieve that? Or is it something entirely different? And then also you got to think towards like, what are your skill sets and strengths and personality? And if you have a team that's multiple executives, like what's the collective team's personality and, and strengths and play to your strengths versus like force against your weaknesses. It's like the difference between headwinds and tailwinds. Like, why are you going to fight against something that you don't like to do and don't want to do. Like, there's no reason Mm -hmm. to do that. Like a tactic is just a tactic. There's no winning tactic. There's no silver bullet, magic bullet. There's no six minute abs, as I like to say, because if there was, we'd all have a six pack and we'd all be retired on the beach in Bali. We would all be rich already and we would all look amazing and we would not be like trying to like toil away working our butts off. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people's expectations are just not rooted in reality. And sometimes it takes somebody, a consultant to tell you that. I mean, I joke around and say that like when I was inside the four walls of an agency and I would say these same things, my performance review would say, thank you for making us a lot of money, but like, you're not a team player. You are um, making people uncomfortable. You are intimidating. And I'm like, well, do you want to make money or not? (laughs) Oh, wow. But now that I'm a consultant, say the same thing and people are like let me pay you three times as much money to tell me the same thing and like thank you oh my gosh you know just like just just praise praise upon praise i'm like i'm legitimately saying the same thing we won't even dive into the underlying um um what, what's the word i'm trying to say the underlying meaning and uh what they were saying to you when they were calling you these things right we won't even tread we won't even go into those waters but um Yeah, I think, you know, growth more often than not is what you're describing. It's that slow and steady compounding and it's playing the long game, you know, and and I think uh, we have this unrealistic expectation because it's glorified. Like 
the fast riches, the fast buck, like people getting rich off crypto or whatever, all that stuff is glorified and we all want that. And I think social media, it's kind of a curse, but that's going to turn out to be a blessing because it's a curse because it's kind of like pumping that up. It's creating this sort of highlight reel of what, you know, of an unrealistic business endeavor or life goal, you know, but the longer social media is out, I think more of us are starting to say, you know what, that's bullshit. (laughs) You know, so it like kind of exposed the ridiculousness of all of this. And now I think cooler heads are going to prevail. And, you know, the slow and steady compounding, I mean, you can look at a company like Costco who, um, you know, has been paying their employers way higher than the minimum wage and, and giving them great benefits benefits since before it was cool to do that. And all they've done is just grown slow and steady over time. And I think they're up something like 3000% since their IPO without any major crashes. You know, you look at um, somebody like Warren Buffett, who, yes, he's a great stock picker, right? And he, his annualized returns certainly beat most of him, most investors because that's he dedicates his life to that, right? But the real driver of his wealth is just that slow and steady compounding. Like there's uh, research out there that will show you that Warren Buffett has amassed over 90% of his net worth after his 65th birthday. So it's just this slow and steady. And then eventually you get to a point where your growth becomes like a hockey stick. It goes parabolic. And so that's just, and that's the hand motion you were describing. So yeah, that's, I think, such a good way to, um, to look at growth. So yeah, I think uh, what you said about the, just the ridiculousness, like I call out 10x a lot. Like, you know, people love these little on social little like hashtags and handles and short ways of explaining something. But I think the 10x thing is really out of control because, you know, people have now even almost like use it as an expression of like 10x your life, like make your life 10 times better. It's like, what does that mean? When you say 10x, people are thinking revenue or they're thinking profit, like they're thinking money. And I can tell you, I've worked for several successful companies and with a lot of successful companies and 10X beyond, beyond a million dollars, like, okay, 10,000 to 100,000, yes, you can 10X. 100,000 to a million, yes, that's doable. A million to 10 million or 10 million to 100 million or 100 million to a billion, get out of here. Like that doesn't happen. Like that does not happen in a year. That does not happen overnight. Like if you, if a company does 10 X, it is over a significant period of time and not without a lot of effort into even just like, you have to become a whole different like business entity, you know, like you're talking about moving from like an LLC to an S corp to a C corp to having shareholder, you know what I mean? So it's like, so when people just flippantly talk about 10 X, this and that it's like, who are we talking to? Are we talking to people that are making $10,000? If so, that's fine. But you have to quantify it. Like just throw me around 10 X as if that's like an easily achievable thing. I was uh, having lunch with my friend, Tiffany Harden yesterday, and we decided to call that charlatan shit. (laughs) (laughs) Aptly named. Yeah. Just like, no, that's some charlatan shit. Like, no, like we are not 10 Xing anything overnight. Like, uh, like I said, no six minute abs. So like, and I don't know, I mean, not not to take this to an extremely political place, but I think like you have somebody like a Trump as president and like all the stuff that he's like said over time about business. And it just makes people think like like the whole get rich quick thing. 
it's like, oh, well, you know, all you do is blah, blah, blah. And then here you, you have millions of dollars. It's like, that's not really how business works. Not for most businesses. I mean, again, you have these outliers of things that went viral or things that were like astronomically successful, but there's usually something else going on behind the scenes of, as to why that happened. So like, think about that, you know, it's sort of like politics. It's like, there's so much going on behind the scenes that nobody sees in terms of like what drives success or lack of success. And so, you know, you have to think about, it's like the Wizard of Oz, like what's going on behind the curtain? <laughs> mm. We only see yeah. what's um, in front of the curtain on social media. You really don't know how these businesses are growing and also what what are they doing either ethically or unethically more likely to, to experience that level of growth. Like you have to consider that because again, take it back to ethics. Like can somebody 10 X their business? Yes, it's possible. Did they do it in an ethical manner? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so Nora, I was wondering if we could end on, if you think back to somebody who's kind of in your situation where they've climbed the ladder and they've, it's not all they hoped it would be. Right. What's like something that they can do? Cause it's a, it's a long process. Number one, to transform your mindset away from corporate to doing your own thing, or not even necessarily doing your own thing, but just following your heart a little bit more with the work that you're doing. But what's something that they can like do today just to kind of get the ball rolling in the right direction? Like what advice would you have for your past self? And then after that, I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about where people could go if they want to find out more information on you and the awesome work that you're doing for small businesses. Sure. Um, One thing that really helped me that I discovered around the time that I was thinking about going off on my own is a Japanese concept called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. So you can look it up. There's lots you'll if you look up Ikigai, you'll find a lot of these diagrams of it, but it's essentially a four-leaf clover Venn diagram. So it's four intersecting circles. And the four circles are what am I good at? What do I like to do? What can I make money doing? And what is good for the world? And so I felt like in advertising, I long felt like I had the first three. I was good at it. I liked it. It was interesting. I was working with interesting people. I mean, you work in advertising, you work with creatives and and strategists and just data scientists and just cool people. You know, it's like when people talk about like starving artists and like, oh, don't go into art. You won't make any money. Like it's actually a place like you can make money in doing art and and like the union of art and psychology. So like that always fascinated me. I always loved advertising. I still do. And now I consult to agencies. Like I haven't left advertising really. but, and I made money. Like, I mean, I talked about how I could have made more money, maybe, you know, um, but I did make money, right? Like I had a six figure salary. Uh, but what I felt like was often missing for me in advertising, and this is a lot of what people complain about with advertising in general as a practice is um, the part about what's good for the world. Like, is advertising actually good for the world? Like if we're advertising tobacco products, if we're advertising for fossil fuels, for advertising, for alcohol. I mean, like you have to think about your own personal boundaries. Like I always had a line, like I, when you could still advertise tobacco, like I wouldn't work on that, but I've worked on alcohol brands. I I'm a consumer of alcohol. So like that doesn't cross an ethical boundary for me, but for some people who are living a sober lifestyle, it does. So like, I think you have to think about what your own boundaries are, but like, 
is advertising good for the world? It can be if it's if the powers are used for good. But like a lot of people think about advertising as like a dark art. It's like in the art of manipulation. It's like um, there's this concept in in VC about how to invest in brands and the types of brands you invest in. And it's this idea of being a vitamin versus a painkiller brand. So, you know, a vitamin is nice to have, like, we think it helps us be healthy, but we're not exactly sure. And maybe it's a placebo effect, like, you know, and some, so a lot of times people will start on a vitamin regimen, but then eventually they'll trail off and they'll stop because they're just not sure if it's working versus you have an excruciating headache and you need some Advil or Tylenol to take the headache away. It's like, I have a pain, I have an immediate pain and immediate need, and I need this headache to go away. So a lot of times that's like the strategy in investing. And there's this way of thinking about that, like how to take something that would be perceived as a vitamin brand and turn it into a painkiller brand, which is this idea of create an anxiety in the mind of the consumer that only purchase can relieve. That is manipulative. Like that's using the psychological underpinnings of branding and marketing, like in what could be construed as a negative way, like manipulating people into buying something that they may or may not actually need. <laughs> so, you know, that was sort of that question mark for me is like, is advertising good for the world? I'm not sure. Do you talk to different people? Different people will say different things. So I felt like what would be good for the world, what is good for the world for me is helping small businesses grow. So the line that I've used for Pitcher, my company that helps small businesses, is that small businesses deserve to grow too. We know that big businesses are growing. We know that they're getting tax breaks. We know that they're getting attention from agencies and other and lawyers and, you know, accountants and the big four accounting and, you know, the big six ad, you know, holding companies like Big business is good. Like they've got it, right? Like they've been deemed by our government and our society that they deserve to grow. And rightfully so, because they employ a lot of people. Like, you know, without big business, we'd have a lot of people unemployed and suffering. So like, I am not anti-big business to be clear. And I'm also not anti-capitalism. Um, I am pro-business, but I am, but I am also pro-small business. I'm pro-small business growing and deserving that growth and the ability to grow too, because small businesses account for 44% of our economy. There's 33 million small businesses just in the United States alone. And they're driving most of the growth of new jobs in our country. So I would say on paper, they deserve to grow too, but yet they're not getting the same kinds of services, right? So like, so that Ikigai concept, if you look that up, apply that to like whatever industry you're in. Like, obviously I've talked a lot about advertising and marketing, but like in finance, you know, Brian, you're really good at finance. You liked it. It made you money. Was it good for the world? The company that you were working with or how you were doing it? It's kind of the same thing as you, like, it could be if it's put to good use, but unfortunately there's some people that use it for nefarious reasons. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a, it's a good, like, if you're going to go off on your own or with a partner or in a partnership, or there's lots of ways you can form a small business. You don't have to just be a solopreneur. Um, my second business is with a partner. So that's been a, a cool experience recently to, to transition to having a partner in a business and how that could be different than just being completely on my own. Um, but yeah, really ask yourself, like, what kind of dent do I want to make in the universe? And 
do I think that what the what I'm doing right now and how I'm doing it is good for the world? And if it's not, then that might be a good indicator that you could or should go off on your own to fix something that drives you nuts. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nora. Um, really appreciate you coming on. A great conversation as always. And obviously you're you're on LinkedIn. So I would recommend anybody, if if they're not already following you to follow you on there, your name will be in the show notes spelled out. So Oh, thank you. That's where you'll find most of my stuff. Yeah, on LinkedIn. Is that is LinkedIn kind of where you're primarily active? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I have two I have two little kids and two businesses. So I can't I don't have too much time. Like we talked about time being a finite resource. I do not have much time to be on multiple platforms. Like you won't find me on TikTok. You'll rarely find me on Instagram, but you will find me on LinkedIn a lot because I, I have found that investing time into that platform has actually yielded a lot of incredible friendships. Um, you know, that's how I found out about First Gen and Andrew. So that, you know, brought our us into each other's orbit. And I've done a lot of deals on LinkedIn. I've made a lot of great friends. So yeah, for now, uh, I'm sticking with LinkedIn as long as I can keep myself from getting um, kicked off for hate speech. <laughs> I like <laughs> against white men. <laughs> yeah. I love that because, um, you know, you're using social media to be social and build relationships versus trying to maximize the likes and the comments and go viral, you know, so that's pretty cool. And then your, your website, is it pitcher.com? It is pitchergrowth.com. So yeah, you can find me there. And then my second company is called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So that's for specifically for ad agencies and their growth. And that is bloodsweatandtears.co. C-O. Well, thanks again, Nora. We'll have to do it again soon sometime. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a moment, check out my website at reflectivewealth.com. Everything you need to know about my business is there. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my career, transparency and accountability are critical to a healthy financial services industry. Thanks and see you next time.